Uh, I want to begin with a question. What's the boldest thing you've ever said to another human being? Like, what's one statement that took more guts than you knew you had to make it to someone else? I remember uh, probably three or four years ago now, a lady well into her 40s told me that she finally told her mother, her mother, something that a lot of people have wanted to say to her, including her, for many, many years. And they were uh, on a visit together. The mother was down visiting, and uh, they were getting ready to go somewhere. And in her usual fashion, the mom was kind of controlling everything, what time they left and where they went and how they went, and et cetera, et cetera. It went on for several minutes. And finally, this lady said for the first time in her life, she got this surge of courage. And she said to her mom, you know, if you were any more controlling, your first name would be Dictator. And apparently that opened up some dialogue that needed to happen for 40 years. <laughs> I don't recommend it, but if you try it, let me know how it turns out for you. Okay? I say this because we're going to look today at maybe one of the boldest people in all the Bible. And certainly one of the boldest statements that ever got made. It was said by a prophet, that's what we're looking at these days, a guy by the name of Amos. It's found in a book of the Bible that's named after him. If you're not sure where Amos is in the Bible, it's right before Obadiah. If you're not sure where Obadiah is, you probably need to read the Bible a little more, okay? But Amos is probably, probably the earliest historically of what is called the writing prophets. These are prophets whose books have their names attached to them and their story and their message and their life is included in the um, passages. There's prophets like Elisha that Ravi talked about last week, did such a great job telling us that story. But beginning with Amos, they have books that contain the messages and the story of their lives. Now, as I've said many, many times from this stage, it's very important when it comes to the Bible that we understand the backdrop of a character that we read uh, so that we really understand why he said what he said or she said what she said. Amos lived and ministered around the time of about 750 B.C., 750 B.C. before Christ. And in the very first chapter, first verse, it says this, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, which I think is kind of a neat little fact, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. Remember, there's two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. The first thing you notice is that Amos was not a professional prophet. He's kind of like um, a bivocational worker. Okay? He's a, a farmer. He takes care of sheep. And we're told in verse 7 that he even takes care of some fig trees down in a little place called Tekoa. It's a little town near Bethlehem in the southern kingdom. He lives down in Judah, the southern kingdom. And one day God says to Amos, hey, leave your sheep and I want you to proclaim my word and I want you to preach. But interestingly enough, I don't want you to preach to your people and my people down in Judah. I want you to go up to the northern kingdom to Israel and you're going to preach there. Now understand that in the northern kingdom in Israel at that time, they were enjoying kind of political success 
and economic prosperity like they had not had since the days of King Solomon. And people up in the northern kingdom, they have a lot of money now. They're really happy and things are going well. And Amos is sent to Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom. And it's kind of the center of wealth and power. And when he gets there, people kind of wonder, what in the world is this guy going to preach about? Now, I'm going to walk through this because I think this is just a brilliant setup by the writer. Amos is preaching now to the people in the northern kingdom, even though he's from the southern kingdom. He gets there, and in Amos chapter 1, it says this. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus. Now, let me say this. Damascus is the capital of Syria. Syria is one of the enemies of Israel. So he says, for three sins of Damascus, God says, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. And they have to understand this is kind of a pronouncement of judgment upon Damascus. He says, for three sins, even for four. In our language, we talk about things like this. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. You heard people say that, right? Well, this is a Hebrew way of saying that the camel is now in a full body cast. Okay? It's bad. Things have gone on too far. And when people hear this pronouncement, they know that this is really bad news for Syria. And he, then he goes on to describe why God feels this way. He says, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. In other words, Syria, Syria invaded Gilead with acts of unspeakable cruelty, barbaric. And he announces judgment of God. Uh, he says it's going to fall on one of Israel's enemies. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're there and you're listening to this message from Amos, do you think that you would be glad to hear him preaching this or would you be upset? Okay? You can answer. Would you be glad that he's going to take care of your enemy or be upset? You would be glad. Those were your enemies. The people are there going, yeah, preach it, Amos. Great job. The enemies are going to get judged. But then he goes on. And he says this, he says, for three sins of Gaza. Now, Gaza is one of the Philistine cities. Again, one of the primary enemies of Israel. He says, for three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. And then he says, here's what they did. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. In other words, they were slave traders. They captured the women, the people, the men, the women, the children, sold them into slavery, and says, that's not good, that's not going to happen. God is going to have to judge the Philistines. And the people are just clapping, and they're just all hooting, and they're hollering, and they're saying, you preach it, you preach it, Amos. And then he continues, and he goes on through different um, enemies of Israel. Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon. In verse 14, he talks about, or verse 13, he talks about Moab. And every case, he says, this is the last straw that pushed God over the edge. And the people are just cheering. And then in verse 4 of chapter 2, he does a very surprising thing. He says this. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Now, let's quick little history lesson here. If you've been here the last five minutes, who is from Judah? Amos. And the people are kind of looking around at each other going, whoa, 
bold move, Amos. Preaching against your own people down in the southern kingdom. This is kind of surprising, but they're applauding and they're cheering. Why? Because they're not friends with the southern kingdom. They don't get along too well with Judah. Now, all of this preaching and all of this message and all of this, you know, judgment pronouncement is building up to some great drama. And some of you sitting here may know where this story is going, but you have to remember that the people in that day did not have a clue. They think that Amos is saying all this because they're God's chosen people and he's going to take care of them and because God is on their side. But look at what he says in verse 6. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four. And let me tell you, friends, when he said that, you could have heard a pin drop. Crickets. <laughs> they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Remember now how affluent the northern kingdom is. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledges. In other words, they would take garments as collateral from the poor, but according to Deuteronomy chapter 24, they're supposed to give them back at nightfall so that they can sleep in them, so they have something to keep them and protect them and to cover them. But the rich don't do that in Israel. In the house of their God, the prophet says, they drink wine taken as fines. And Amos just kind of sends this message out and there is no more clapping and there is no more applauding and there is no more hooting and hollering. He is actually challenging Israel and saying, you live as if you were one of God's enemies. Now, what's the straw that broke the camel's back? What's the act that says God has had enough? And Amos says it very clearly. He says, it is the way that people who have resources and claim to love God treat the poor and marginalized of this world. He does not say it's you don't worship enough. It isn't that you don't know the Bible or the scriptures well enough. He doesn't say a lot of things that maybe in our day we would say from the pulpit. He says it's one thing. It's the way that the people who have resources and claim to know me and follow me and love me. It's the way they treat the poor and disfranchised. Now, it's terribly important that you and I understand this. If we go back to the book of Deuteronomy just for a second. Remember Moses is telling the people what God expects from his community. He says this is how life is supposed to work. This is how community is supposed to work. This is how you're supposed to live. And in these verses... It's very interesting because there's three groups of people that he keeps repeating over and over and over. See if you notice who they are. In Deuteronomy 24, God says, Do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. This is why I command you to do this. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. When you beat the olives from the trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. 
When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that's why I command you to do this. Now, what are the three groups here that God tells the Israelites to watch out for? First, aliens. These are people who have immigrated in. They're not ethnic Israelites. They're other people, other folks. The second group is the fatherless. These are orphans. They have no one to look after them. In many cases, they are very vulnerable and helpless. And then the third category in that day is the widow. And the widow was someone without any economic means, without any power whatsoever in that society. So God says, listen, I want you to watch out for the alien. I want you to watch out for the fatherless, for the orphans. And I want you to take care of the widows. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll maybe shocked to find out how many times this particular group of people come up over and over again. Now, in our day, our day, we would call them marginalized people. People that are kind of out on the margins. They are forgotten. They are oppressed. They're mistreated. In some cases, they're in some very miserable conditions. And they have different identities in different societies. They may be persons of color. They may be senior citizens. They may be people with physical or mental disabilities, maybe minorities. But every society, every society, friends, has them. They have existed from the very beginning of time. Now, this is what we need to understand about the heart of God. The widow, the alien, and the orphan receive over three dozen verses in the Old Testament alone, demanding that God's people show them justice and compassion. God says he will judge society based on the way it treats marginalized people. Think about this. He will judge society by the way it treats marginalized people. If you neglect them, God says, you neglect him. If you oppress them, you oppress him. Look at Proverbs 19. In fact, let's just read this out. It's really short. Listen to what he says in the book of Proverbs. Let's just read this scripture on the screen together. He who is kind to the poor lends to the poor. Think about that. It's like you're giving your money to me, God says, when you lend to the poor, when you help people who are on the fringe. Psalm 68, 5, look what it says. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy place. Now, I want to leave this up for just a moment. A father to the fatherless. When you think about this verse, and you start thinking about how people treat your children, when you become a parent, friends, there's nothing more important than how you treat my kids. Years ago, my oldest daughter, Sabrina, was going into the second grade, and she was attending a new school. We had moved from the north side of Lakeland to the south side. She was going to a brand new school, so we had those orientations that I guess they still have uh, before classes began. Some of you went there probably this week. And they go there because they want to find out who the teacher is and where the classes are located and the schedule and all those things. Now, here's the difference between a mother and a father when they go to orientation. Robin goes in, and she's wondering, like, what's the teacher like, and where's the classroom, and how close are the bathrooms, and all this kind of stuff. Me, I stop at the front door, 
And I look at all the students who are on the roll in that class. And I start running over it. And I start seeing names like Rudy, Nathan, Benjamin, Cody, James, Preston. And then I walk inside and I see the teacher has already assigned a desk to each student. She's got their name on it. And I see that Sabrina is going to sit by Cody. So when nobody's looking, I just kind of switch the names. Now Rebecca's sitting by Sabrina. Listen, anybody named Cody is nothing but trouble. Especially in the second grade, for sure. You know, God says that the protectiveness and fierce love that a father feels for his child is a dim reflection of how deeply and passionate God is for the people who live on the margins of society. Did you hear what I said? It's a dim reflection. This is a very serious thing, God says, and I want to explain it as clearly as I can. God expects his people to have a heart like him. From the book of 1 John, think about this. If any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? That's a pretty sobering verse. Now here's the question. If you're Amos, how do you confront a society that is so addicted to comfort, so addicted to convenience, so addicted to affluence, so addicted to the Internet, Oh, sorry, that wasn't in there. <laughs> that it doesn't care about what God cares about. How do you do that? So he tries a lot of different stuff. The first thing he says is, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Now think about this. I read a great article a few months ago about a guy who used to work with Mother Teresa. And he said he was with her one time and he just noticed how bad her feet were. They were so badly misshapen. And he asked somebody uh, in her community about that. And they said, well, he says, in the, in the community of the poor where Mother Teresa works, there's never enough shoes. So when shoes are donated, Mother Teresa insists, she absolutely insists that we give the best away to the poor first. And then she takes what's left the worst for herself. And over the years, over decades and decades of time, her feet have gotten badly deformed because she has worn these um, bad pair of shoes. Amos says to the people, listen, a poor person is just a debt to you. They're not, they're not worth much. And if you were to sell them, the truth is all you could probably get is a pair of sandals. But the problem is you still sell them. A buddy of mine told me that his girlfriend asked for, he's not here at Oasis. His girlfriend asked for a pair of shoes for Christmas and he went to the store to get them. $1,400. He's not with her anymore. <laughs> he says, how can you think the love of God is there if you're, all you're really interested in is treating people like a pair of shoes? He gets down to Amos 3.15, and man, he's on a roll now. And he says, I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished will be demolished. This is kind of an interesting thing. Remember I said Amos lived about 750 B.C. 
He said there's such a shocking disparity between the rich and the poor. And it's very interesting because archaeologists have actually confirmed this. Remember when the um, Canaan, the promised land, was first populated, God gave property, equal property, to all the tribes. Remember the 12 tribes. Everybody lived pretty much alike at the beginning. And even in houses from the 10th century B.C., when archaeologists have dug them up, they're actually very similar. But by the time you get to Amos's day, which is about the 8th century, you find areas where now there are enormous mansions for the rich, and then there are kind of little miserable hovels for the poor. This is what Amos is talking about. He goes on to say, you trample on the poor and force them to give you grain. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Isn't it amazing how hundreds and even thousands of years later, not much has changed? We understand this, right? Every political system in the world has to wrestle with clout and with power. And the weak are always at the mercy of those who have the power. And unfortunately, power gets misused. One of my favorite stories about this involves a guy named Mayor Daley. Do you remember Mayor Daley of Chicago? Not the recent one, but like the old Mayor Daley. He was quite a codger. And he was approached one time by a guy who used to write speeches for him. He says, Mayor, Mayor Daley, I've got to support my family. I'm just not making any money. I need a raise. I need more money. And Daley's response to him was, I'm not going to give you any more money, pal. It ought to be enough that you work for a great American hero like me. And that was kind of the end of the conversation, or so he thought. But several weeks later, Mayor Daley was to give a speech. And he was kind of famous for not, like, reviewing the speeches before he got up. He would often mangle speeches really bad. So he gets up, and he's before a large group of veterans. It's close to Veterans Day. He's kind of getting this national press coverage. And he gives this very eloquent and passionate speech. And he talks about how nobody remembers the veterans in our country. Nobody remembers them. Nobody cares for them. He says, but I remember and I care. And today I'm proposing a 17-point program, national, state, and citywide, to take care of all the veterans in this great country. By this time, people are kind of on the edge of their seat because he's kind of ramped it up. They're kind of, interesting, you know, kind of interested to know what he's going to say. In fact, he's interested to know what he's going to say. <laughs> so he turns the page, and all it says on the next page is, you're on your own now, you great American hero. I love that story. <laughs> Anytime you get a little justice in this world, people cheer. People say yes. And Amos is looking at a whole subculture, a whole part of society that had all the power and all the resources. And Amos says here, God isn't kidding about this. He's so unbelievably bold. Listen to how he, how he talks here. I mean, this guy's pretty bold. He says, let me see if I can wake you up. For all you guys who have all the money and all the power, he said, hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husband, bring us some drinks. <laughs> He's calling the wives of the wealthy cows of Bashan. Now, you may feel like they'd be complimented by this. 
Actually, Bashan was a kind of a fertile area, and they had kind of uh, they were kind of famous for breeding and for feeding their cows very well. Now, unless you think he's just kind of name-calling here, you need to understand what Amos is doing. He said, think about the nature of a cow for just a moment. How many cows do you know that are notable for good works? Let's think about a St. Bernard. St. Bernards are kind of known for what? They go out, they rescue people. Lassie, remember Lassie? Saved Timmy like 300 times from death. Dolphins. Dolphins. Who's the famous dolphin? Flipper. Saved all kind of people. How about a cow? Don't say the Chick-fil-A cow because all he does is feed people chicken, all right? A cow is just a walking appetite. You know what the question the cow asks? Where can I get some more? The only question a cow ever asks is, where can I get some more? Amos says, this is the kind of people we produce. We produce cows of Bashan. He says, and the real problem, this is even worse, he says, is that people make no connection between their treatment of the poor and their relationship with God. Let me say it this way. They make no connection between their relationship with God and the racism that is in their heart. And they still go to church, and they still give, and they still go to Bible study, and they still dislike people of a different color. He says, you don't understand. There is a connection between these two things. You can't just go and worship and go and sacrifice and live under this delusion that you're going to be blessed because of it. So then he just kind of finally just thunders at home. I mean, it gets really brutal now. <laughs> I wish you'd have taught this, Robbie, instead of me. He says, I hate, I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. <laughs> Can you imagine the people, the shockwaves going through this crowd? He says, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice offerings, fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Listen, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. He's like, just tell the band to go home. And in Amos 5.24, he says this great statement that we've heard many times. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. God says, let that happen one time. Don't just sit there and eat your big fat feast while people outside your doors are literally starving to death. Don't do that. He says you've got to make some kind of connection between your faith and the need of this world. So finally in chapter 7, Amos gives this unforgettable picture. And we're going to kind of end with this. God says, I got to get rid of this. I got to do something about it. So they talk about locusts, and Amos says, No, I don't do that, God. And God relents. He says, no, What about fire? And he says, No, I don't do that, God. And he says, Okay, I relent. And in Amos chapter 7, God paints this picture, and this is so awesome. Amos says, This is what the Lord showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. 
The Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I'm sending a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Let me show you something on the screen. This is what is called a plumb line. Now, it is not my plumb line because I know diddly about carpentry. Okay? But people who do know something about it tell me that this is a plumb line and it's basically just a weight tied to a string. Now, it's called a plumb line because they used to be made of lead, and the Latin word for lead is plumbum. A plumb line is simple to understand, very simple. I don't know about carpentry, but I understand it. A plumb line is a standard. A plumb line tells you if something is straight or if something is crooked. A plumb line standard is absolute. Listen, friends, a table is either true to plumb or it is not. A wall is either true to plumb or it is not. Carpenters, if you talk to them, are not big into relativism. You will never find a carpenter who says, you know, you have your plumb and I have my plumb. We all have our plums, really. <laughs> and if your plumb should meet my plumb, that's a beautiful thing. But if they don't, that's okay, too. Don't complain to me if your house is out of plumb because it may be too plumb for you, but it's not plumb enough for me. No one ever says that as a carpenter. That's not the way plumb works. Now, here's the deal. We do not live in a plumb line society. In this world, we like to live by measuring ourselves and comparing ourselves to one another. Here's the thing about the plumb line. I can always in our society find someone who is worse than me. Someone who is greedier. Someone who is further off and away from God. I can always, always find a way to make myself feel good. Always. We can always say, I'm going to be generous and I want to be generous. I just don't have it right now. Things are too tight. Someday when I have more money... Someday I'll take care of the people God wants me to take care of. I just need to get this one thing. I really want this one thing. And when I buy it and it makes me happy, then I can give. I'd love to serve people. I'd love to help people. I'd love to form a relationship with someone of a different ethnicity. Someone of a different orientation. Someone of a different culture. I'd love to do that if I just wasn't so busy. See, we have this endless capacity and we think that that's plumb because we all have our own form of plumb. God says to Amos, hey, Amos, look, what do you see? And Amos says, it's a plumb line. And God says, listen, I'm setting a plumb line among my people. Now, this is the question for today, and then we'll close. God says, I'm going to measure my people by one standard. And here it is. Really simple. Are there hungry people? Feed them. Are there sick people? Help them. Are there oppressed people? Stick up for them. Are there lonely widows? Visit them. Are there uneducated children? Teach them. Are there people who are rejected because of the color of their skin or their orientation or the way that they talk? He says, you befriend them. Every society has aliens, orphans, 
and widows. And that, he says, is the standard that I'll measure society by. So here's the question. Where is our heart? And this is not about you. This is about us. Where is our heart today? There's a lot of hope also in the book of Amos, unless you think it's all bad news. In verse 4 of chapter 5, he says, Seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. This is God talking. Bethel and Gilgal were places where altars, golden calves had been set up. He says, don't go there. He said, just seek me. Just come after me and live. Our society, friends, is in trouble. Our world is fighting. And sometimes it feels like we're fighting for the very soul. The soul of our country and the soul of our people. So what if we did what Amos says? What if we created just a community of compassion? What if we blanketed our own little personal world with generosity and concern? What what would happen? I just say this to you. You never know what one human being can do. You never know what one little bivocational shepherd who hears God say, go, and he goes. You never know what he might be able to do. But I'll tell you, 3,000 years after him, the world is still being shaped by his words. You never know what one person can do.